blessing to be back, um, preparing to share the word with you. We're in John chapter 13, looking at verses 21 to 38, and um, I'm sure that there have been occasions when um, someone has betrayed your trust. Maybe you confided in them only to find someone else um, speaking of those things that you had stated in confidence and feeling so disappointed and feeling so let down. Um, I'm sure that maybe equally as many have experienced betraying the trust of someone else. And um, maybe even getting found out to that end. Betrayal. It's a painful experience. And yet a reality of life. And one that even Jesus himself tasted. You know, I think about the um, woman who was married for several years. And at the funeral of her husband, um, found out that he had other children that she wasn't aware of, um, younger than her own, and just the sense of almost grief that grips the heart that someone could have betrayed the trust in such a way. It's a deep thing. And as we look at the text today, we'll see Jesus experienced the reality of that in ways that moved him. And so let's look at John chapter 13, starting at verse 21, I'll read and then pray. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. No one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast. Or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. And it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a while I am with you. 
you will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me. Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Lord, we meet you in the text. And we meet you in the text. And as we meet you, Lord, we um, expect not only will you reveal yourself to us, but you will reveal us to ourselves. Help us, Lord, because truly you are the Most High, the conquering King, and yet he who took on the form of man, walked in an earth suit as a man, and tasted what we experience. Lord, we pray that you'd comfort, challenge, that, Lord, you'd correct and encourage us as we give ourselves to your word, Lord, in order that you would speak to our hearts. Thank you for this time. In your name we pray, Lord. Amen. So they're in the upper room. It's the final 24 hours of Jesus' life. They're sharing in the Passover meal, which generally is a time of celebration. The disciples are there, all 12 of them, and they're reclining at table. Jesus has just washed their feet and returned to his position. He'd already began to highlight the fact that Judas was among them. Now, I say Judas was among them because even the very name in our day and age has become a euphemism for a traitor. You Judas. Somebody calls you a Judas, you know they're not paying you a compliment. Up until this point, he hadn't named the individual who would betray him. But he had made it clear that someone would. John comments on this in verse 2 of the chapter. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him. So that's a narrator's comment in the chapter there. It was obviously something that affected John because it's an issue that he kept returning to as he quotes the Lord in that instance. Two more times prior to our section, he quotes Christ speaking of he who will betray him. From the outset, we see that this wasn't a surprise to Jesus. 
In fact, it was something that Jesus was actually in complete control of. From back in chapter 6, verse 70, we see Jesus say, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? So Judas was among them intentionally by Christ's choosing. And yet having said that, the fact that one who walked among them, one who rolled with them, who ate, slept, walked and worked with them, the fact that he would betray him troubled Jesus. We don't often read of Jesus being troubled. And so it's significant. So often we think about Jesus' suffering as merely being physical. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And yet, Jesus was also affected by the emotional challenges that we experience. When Hebrew says Jesus was in every point tested yet without sin, it means in every way. Jesus is a high priest who can relate to our weaknesses. The pain, the burn of betrayal, Jesus felt it, even in this moment before it happened. And as he shared this with the disciples, they were entirely uncertain. There was a stunned silence. Who could he be talking about? And so Peter, always one to take the initiative, right? Not content to think, well, it's not me, so that's all right. He turns to the disciple who Jesus loved. And this was John's humble way of referring to himself. And you might think that doesn't sound very humble, the disciple who Jesus loved. (laughs) I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. But actually, he wasn't saying it in that sense. The tone in the language really conveys a sense of, I'm the disciple that even he would love. There's a sense of very, uh, very strong self-effacing, a very strong sense of unworthiness that actually Jesus would love me. And so we see this and his um, efforts to be anonymous in not referring to himself by name as being a mark of the great love that John had for Jesus and the appreciation for the closeness of their relationship even though he felt so unworthy of it. And so Peter turns to him and in doing so he's like, All right, John, you're closest, so look, you ask him. Who's he talking about? This was clearly a whisper. And even as John communicated with Jesus and Jesus said to him, the person who I give this bread to after I've dipped it, nobody heard this conversation. Because when Judas got up to leave and do what he's doing, Jesus having said, whatever you're doing, go and do it quickly. The rest of the disciples wondered what was going on. They didn't hear that conversation. Is he going to buy food? Is he going to give some, some money to charity? Like, 
Jesus knew all along. And it's interesting. It seems almost incidental when we see this kind of color to the story and we see these details. Peter leaned over to John and John spoke to Jesus and Jesus told John and then Jesus turned to Judas and Judas got up and nobody understood. And it seems kind of like almost unnecessary information. But implicit within it, there's certain things that become apparent. So you may remember last time I showed a picture of um, what it may look like for the disciples to have been reclining at table. And um, as much as you can't see it very well, they're leaning on their left side, lying down, feet extended behind them, um, using their right hand to, to eat. And so the host would be at the, the prominent position, um, possibly on the end of the right there. Um, it's quite possible that John was there for the person next to him on his right and Peter being next to John. Now there's, no necess- you know, there's nothing really to be read into that. We know that Peter was next to John because Peter spoke to John and John spoke to Jesus. So they was in that order. It wasn't necessarily a ranking. We don't know that. But we know that they were in close proximity to each other. So when we see that John leaned back, some, say, some translations say that John leaned on his breast, you can see from that picture that for him to kind of lean back and have a private conversation, he would have, he would have, he would have leaned into Jesus. And it wouldn't have been strange. And it wouldn't have been seen as some kind of inappropriate um, expression of male affection. There's something that strikes me about that as a side issue. Jesus was accessible. Jesus was not only accessible in terms of his, where he was located, but he was emotionally accessible. He was close to his disciples. He was particularly close to John and Peter. Very often you see their names with Jesus when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, who was with him? When Jesus was raising the girl from the dead, who was with him? Peter and John. The reality is that, you know what? They were close. It wasn't strange. And it's a beautiful thing that he who is the Almighty, the Most High, made himself accessible, made himself available, even emotionally, in relationship. I heard somebody somebody say once that we can be as close to God as we want to be. And it's true. God is accessible to us. God is available for intimate relationship. Now, what's also interesting about the way that they're kind of positioned is that the person in these um, celebration um, high-season meals who was on the left of the host was considered to be in the position of honor, was considered to be in the the position of esteem. 
And so if Jesus was in the middle on the right-hand side, the person to his left, to his, just behind him, would have been potentially and most likely Judas. Within easy reach of passing the bread. And even in the moment that Judas takes on the inspiration and responds and gives himself to betray Jesus, he leaves from a position of honor. He leaves from a this is a this is this is communicating you're my friend, you're my people. I'm going to give you this place because I'm for you. And even from that place, Judas gets up with betrayal in his heart. It definitely serves as a warning to us to not take our place in Christ for granted. To not take his favor for granted. It serves as a warning to us not to take our place in his body for granted. As if that insulates us against turning against the Lord. But we're to guard our hearts with all diligence. And so Judas clearly had a choice. Why would he do this? Well, it's not absolutely clear what his motive was. People speculate, and fundamentally that's what it all amounts to. But we do know that he chose to do it. He chose to give himself to the will of Satan rather than to the will of God. You see in verse 2, we see that Satan put it in his heart to betray Jesus. But Satan didn't force it into his heart. He accepted it. He received it. He received the inspiration. He received the idea. Satan didn't overpower him. James chapter 1 and verse 14 tells us, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Judas desired to do this. And it's true that Satan doesn't have any power over us other than that which we give him in Christ Jesus. And so we see Judas make the choice to embrace the will of Satan and reject the will of God. We are told in our text that as Judas received the morsel, that he was given over to Satan. Verse 27, after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. 
Now, demon possession is very real. We see it throughout the pages of scriptures, both old and new. And we recognize that it's something that even in our day is a reality. There are those who have taken the truth to an extreme and they see a demon in everything. A demon behind every door, as they say. So if you have a cold, it's the demon of a cold. If you have a headache, it's the demon of headache. Um, If you're, I mean, I could go on and on. This we don't see in scripture. And yet, we're not to throw the baby out with the bathwater, as they say. Because people take things to a wrong extreme, it doesn't mean that we ought to go to the other wrong extreme. But let me say this. There are only two people that we read of in scripture that were actually possessed by the devil himself. Now, I say there are two people that we read of. I don't know if there have been others. Some people say Hitler was possessed by the devil. I, I can't say yes and I can't say no. Obviously, he done heinous, wicked things. But we recognize that there are only two people in human history who are stated in scripture as being possessed by the devil. And the second is yet to come. So in 2 Thessalonians, we see the Apostle Paul speaking of he who is yet to come, he who will be given over to the power of Satan. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. The man of, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. So there is a time when this individual will arise Some people have termed him the Antichrist. There's all different names that's been um, given, the son of perdition. And yet, this individual will stand in future history, and maybe not too distant future, as one who opposes God. 
even claiming to be God and also performing signs and wonders. And yet the text defines it as lying signs and wonders because they are deceptive. They do not come from the source or place of truth. They are not by the Holy Spirit. And people are deceived by this individual because they love not the truth. See, when people chase after signs, when people chase after miracles, rather than giving themselves to standing on the word of God, well then, to do that is to make ourselves vulnerable to deception. I like the way somebody once put it. I don't chase after signs. Signs chase after me. I don't follow after signs. Signs follow me. Signs and wonders are not to be those things that we're to pursue. And it's important that we're forewarned because they say to be forewarned is to be forearmed. There is a lawless one who will come and he will claim to be Christ. The term antichrist is a term that doesn't merely mean against Christ, but also in place of. So back to our text. Having been warned of this. And I should also add, you know, it's... um, Something for us to be aware of, but not to be in fear of. Because as we read in the text, Jesus will kill him with the breath of his mouth. Jesus don't even have to raise a finger. He'll just say the word and it's over. I can't remember which one of the X-Men movies it was. And um, this character, I can't even remember her name. Is it Jean Grey? And she hovers like this. And she just thinks, and then everybody just dissolves. And they're running, just dust. And you imagine, that's just the imagination of man. Jesus is the Almighty. He just speaks the word and it's over. Dust. Not even dust, just vaporized. Praise be to God. We're on the winning team. We serve the Almighty. So Judas gave himself over. And he left them. And at that point in verse 31, Jesus declares, this is the moment we've all been waiting for. Now is the Son of Man glorified. This was the hour that he had been speaking of. This was the moment of destiny. And he talks about the fact that this is his moment, the moment in which he glorifies the Father and the Father glorifies him. And and what is this moment? What is so significant about this moment? And it kind of, as much as I know the story and I know the text, and it it took me a minute to really kind of get my head around it because the only thing that happens next is Jesus is tried and killed. And yet, This is the means by which Jesus brings the greatest glory to God. 
the death of the cross. This word here, glorified, speaks of the revelation of God's splendid, act, splendid activity. From Genesis 3.15, when God declared the coming of the offspring, the seed who would crush Satan's head. Throughout history, God has been working speaking, pointing to this person in this moment when he himself in the form of man would give his life a sacrifice for sin. This is the moment of glory. Jesus giving up his life. And to everyone else it would seem the moments of greatest weakness I mean, they mocked him on the cross, right? Ah, you've saved others. Why don't you come down and save yourself? This reality, I feel for us as Christians, is so seldom presented as the standard. It's... and. Let me, let me clarify that. Very often people have this notion that in order to glorify God, you have to be most successful. You know, if you've got your family life all together and all your ducks are in a row, you've got your business is, is booming, you're academically excellent, you have you're, you're, you're um, financially solvent and independent. You, these are the ways in which you really glorify God. If you're a pillar of the community, you're a school governor, and you're you know, a, a, a real um, giver to charity, these are the ways in which you glorify God. And yet we see the hour of glory is the hour of suffering. It's the hour of sacrifice. It's the moment in which Jesus gives up that which he would most want to keep. He gives it up in order that God be glorified. You see, you may really desire that job in that firm. But are you prepared to give it up? in order that God be most glorified. You may really desire a child, but are you prepared to give it up in order that God be most glorified? You may desire your health, but are you prepared to forego good health in order that God be most glorified? You may desire marriage, but are you prepared to give it up in order that God be most glorified? Because that's what we see here. Now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. In this moment of seemingly utter weakness and yet 
greatest strength. See, it, it takes more strength to turn our back on what's wrong than to just go with the flow. It takes more strength to, to surrender and submit everything that, you know, it's not just a matter of, well, my back's against the wall, I've got my hands up, I've got no choice, I surrender. But no, it's, you think about Adam and Eve in the garden and you see the fruit and the fruit was pleasant to the eyes and it was good for food and it was able to make one wise and they had all of the other fruits but the fruit that they most wanted was that one. They most wanted that fruit. And God said, you can't have it. That which was most desirable, most satisfying, most fulfilling. And God said, no, you can't have it. That which they most wanted, and God said, no. What is God saying to you today? You might think, but like, what can be wrong? It seems so right. I mean, it's only a fruit, right? And it's good for food. It's, it's not going to hurt me. And furthermore, it's going to make me wise. I mean, it looks so lovely. And furthermore, why would even God put it in the garden if he didn't want me to have it? And it's so good. Hmm. No. I know I'm meant to have it. But God says, no, you're not. And you know, the reality is there are things in all of our lives that are so great. They will be so wonderful for us. So good. You know, it could be that unsaved guy or that unsaved girl who just seems so moral and you're just like, but Lord, they're just, they're such a good person already started to warp, twist your theology, you know, because you know that there's none good but God. But they're such a good person. Hmm. And yet God says no. He doesn't say no, they're not good for you. He doesn't say no, actually, behind the smile, there's going to be you know, a real devastating experience. He just says, no, it's not my will. That's all that Adam and Eve had. No, it's not my will. And so we're left with the conflict. Am I prepared to give up what I most want? in order that God be most glorified by my submission to him. Because what I'm saying is, he is greater than whoever and whatever it is that I want. We know Jesus wanted his life. Because in a bit, we see him in the garden. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And yet, this is the moment of glorification 
when the Father is most glorified because Christ gives up what he most wants. It's interesting. God didn't tell Adam and Eve to give up their life. He told them to give up their desire. Are you prepared to give up your desire and submit to the will of the Father and glorify him despite the fact that what you want seems so good? Because so often in that situation what we don't appreciate is that what, what we want may seem so good but God is so much better. We feel like we're losing out when we don't realize that we're gaining. There is nothing good, no one good, apart from God. He is good, completely and utterly and totally. And so Jesus reaffirms the fact that, actually, this is the moment. This is the moment where I give it all up. Verse 33, I'm going to be with you for a bit. You're going to look for me. And just as I said to the Jews, I'm telling you also, where I'm going, you cannot come. See, Jesus is about to step beyond the veil, beyond the veil of life itself, into the realm of the dead. Anybody tries to follow him, they ain't going to come back. This is his journey and his journey alone at this moment in time. And so in contrast to the context of treacherous betrayal Jesus now gives a new commandment a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you you also love one another somebody once said yeah I see how your Bible's full of contradictions Jesus said I give a new commandment to you but there ain't no new commandment there that's in Leviticus with your corrupt text in Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18 you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people but you shall love your neighbor as yourself see what's new about what Jesus is saying here listen they recycled it from Semiramis anyway the Gilgamesh epics Egypt that's where, that's where the Messiah first come from well there is something very new that Jesus is saying at this moment. Yes, he's reiterating a truth. And you know, if somebody comes to you with something of God and they say, oh, this is a new revelation, remember this phrase. <laughs> you hear it all the time. If it's new, it ain't true. If it's not rooted in scripture, if it has no history, if it has no heritage, then you know what? It's going to have no mileage. God never contradicts himself. But as we look at the text, Jesus doesn't just tell them to love one another. He tells them to love one another just as he has loved. Just as he has loved. 
And so he takes it to another dimension. <clears throat> and he says, in this love, all people will know that you're my disciples. If you have love for one another. And not just any love, because you know, there are more songs that have been written about love than any other matter or subject in the history of mankind. I mean, Solomon wrote thousands of songs. And yet the song that is called The Song, The Song of Solomon, is a love song. Nothing new under the sun. And I think it was Solomon that said that as well. Let's consider for a moment four things that speak to us of Christ's love. And we understand that the love of Christ is actually infinite. And so we could spend an eternity reveling in and understanding the love of Christ. I want to highlight four things. We see that Jesus' love was a love submitted to the Father. So any act of love that is going to be like Christ's love is a love that involves words and actions that are submitted to the Father. If I'm encouraging you to sin and claiming to do that in love, then I don't love you. If I'm encouraging you to go against the will of the Father rather than be submitted to the will of the Father, then it's not a genuine Christ-like love. We see from our context that Christ's love is a serving love, not a self-serving love. Somebody once said that true love is the desire to give to others at the expense of yourself. Lust is the desire to get from others at their expense. True love is a serving love. Back in the day, um, there was a group that was hailed as being the first Christian rappers. <laughs> they were called DC Talk. They were not the first Christian rappers, I assure you. But people who didn't know called them that. And they had this song, and the song was, Love is a verb. Love is a doing word. One of my favorite groups of all times, um, many of you may have heard of Fred Hammond. And um, before he was Fred Hammond and the choirs and so on and so forth, he was in commissioned. Go back and check the back catalogue. Some of the best tunes you'll ever hear in your life. And they had a song based on these verses here. Love is not love till you give it away. I feel like I want to sing, but I'm not going to. Love is not love till you give it away. It's waiting to be given. And that's the reality. We can say we love someone. We can even feel love in our heart toward them. But until we show it, it's not genuine. It's not true. It's not Christ-like love. The love of Christ is sacrificial. Not merely loving in terms that are comfortable 
So I'll love you on my own terms as long as it's convenient for me. But as soon as it becomes inconvenient, then you know what? I'll love you from a distance. I've got love for you. It's all good. As long as you don't distress my program. That's not love. Love is forgiven. We see that Christ gave himself in order that we might be forgiven. And having been forgiven by him, we're called to forgive one another. This is what Christ's love looked like. This is the love that we're called to. And you notice there in verse 35, he said, By all this, people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another, it's, it's a Christian love. It's a love from one disciple to another. It's a love that's supposed to stand distinct and contrast to what the world understands to be love. It's a love for one another and not for the world. This is a different kind of love. I'm not saying that the Bible doesn't teach us to love the world, but it teaches us to love the brethren differently. Unfortunately, so many of us, that's, that's not actually really on our radar. Because we love the world hard. Love the world. It always gets to me when I hear people say, oh, you know what, I can't stand Christians, you know, as a Christian. Like, you're saying you can't stand yourself. But I can't stand Christians, you know. Listen, we may have issues, but you know what? That's, that's family business. At the end of the day, we're still family. No one's saying that we're, we're not going to grate each other, rub each other up the wrong way, get on each other's nerves. But that's no excuse to abandon the fellowship of the saints. That's no excuse to withdraw your service or your love towards the brethren. In fact, John goes on in 1 John to say, how can you say you love God who you can't see, but you don't love your brother who you can see? What kind of love is that? Talk, that's what it is, talk. You say you love God, yeah, but you don't love your brother. How do we need to repent? And let our love for God be true and genuine. And make our witness be true and genuine. If you don't love the saints, you don't love God. That's what the Bible says. The reality is that we're all treacherous. We're all traitors. All of us. And you might think, well, you know what? I'm not Judas, you know. Because I'd never do the Lord like that. That's what Peter thought. Yeah, Lord. Where are you going? That I can't come. I'm coming. I'm riding. I laid out my life for you, Lord. Hmm. And Jesus says, you will lay down your life for me, yeah? Like I need your life.
It's when we arrive at that place of recognition that we can do nothing for God, that we can do nothing for Christ, that actually we are a traitor. We might not see ourselves as Judas, but we're definitely Peter. Somewhere in between. Peter was earnest. He was genuine. He was sincere. And in the moment of his trial, he wasn't prepared to give up what he most wanted in order to be identified with Christ. And so he lied and he denied Jesus. And we've all been there. Making a statement on an application form, embellishing our grades, tax return. The list goes on. <clears throat> and so as traitors, we are to recognize and admit that we need Jesus and be overwhelmed that he would invite us to his table to the place of honor and that he would even give himself for us. You see, just as much as we've been betrayed, we've betrayed. And you know, you may feel like there's, I can't think of anyone that I've really kind of done a dirty on, that I've, you know, betrayed, I've betrayed their confidence, thrown them under the bus, blamed them when I didn't have to. I can't really think of anyone. I'd invite you to look back at your text and look at the Savior. Have you ever failed him? Have you ever sinned against him? Have you ever gone your own way rather than his way? Have you ever done your own will rather than his? We're all guilty. It's the height of treachery. And yet Jesus gave himself to glorify the Father a sacrifice for sin that all who would believe would have everlasting life. And so, as I invite you to stand with me as we close, <clears throat> Jesus is faithful. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And in that cleansing process, he makes us more like himself. And as he makes us more like himself, we are more and more able to love with the love that he lo has loved us. I remember when I first started attending Calvary Chapel with Westminster, there was a song that I used to love to sing, and it was written by the pastor there, um, Alwyn. 
The song was love one another. He said, I remember your broken body there on the cross for me. I remember your pain and anguish in the garden of Gethsemane. <laughs> love one another. Keep my commands. Love your sister and brother. Remember, remembering the nail-pierced hands. Treacherous traitors. He's faithful. He's good. Let's pray. Father God, help us, Lord, I ask. Help us as a people to be defined by not how much we know of the Bible and can quote original languages. Lord, may we not merely be known for external superficial things Lord may we be characterized and known for our love for one another a real love and a genuine love not a love merely in words but a love also in deeds forgive us Lord for those times when we have repeatedly refused refused to love our brother and sisters Lord forgive us Lord forgive us Lord for allowing it to be so common among us Lord to love with the lips but not with our lives not ready to make sacrifices for one another not ready to serve one another beyond our own terms and our own comfort zone. Forgive us, Lord. Help us. Because this is the love with which you have loved us. And our love for you and our love for one another is not based on whether or not others deserve it. It's based on the fact that you first loved us and gave yourself for us. Help us, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.